Good morning. My name is Matthew Holmes. I am the senior minister at Turner Christian Church, in case you've forgotten, because it's been over a month since I've preached here. And uh, for a variety of reasons, one, I, was at, I spoke at a conference, and then, um, <clears throat> then there, was, we were, there was COVID, and then I was at a wedding, and then we had convention, and just a lot of things happened. And um, I'm so glad to be back. I've missed you guys. I've missed worshiping with you. I've missed, um, I've missed preaching here. I've missed all of this. And during, it was during that period, it might be because of that, I don't know, that I decided, uh, I felt led to do this sermon series that we're doing. It's called Work Zone, and we're talking about basically, why do we do what we do when we gather on a Sunday morning? And if you want to know what the sermons are going to be about, you can actually just take out your order of service and we're basically going to do a sermon on each one of the items. Not quite every one, but most of those things. We're going to talk about why do we do uh, worship through music? Why do we do confession? Why do we do communion? Why do we do offering? And all of those, and why are those part of our, our gathering? But today, as we get started, I want to talk about why we gather at all. Because for 2,000 years, it's been part of the regular rhythm of the church. But every once in a while, something happens that breaks us out of that rhythm. And over the past two years, I have experienced more challenges to gathering with God's people than ever in the years before that. And I think back, one of the reasons why Pastor Jack has been such a great blessing to us is in helping me figure out different solutions so that we could gather together. Remember that we, we had to, on a, with two days notice, go to our first online-only service. And then it, for a little while, we were pre-recording. I pre-recorded an Easter message over my dining room table at home. Uh, we've done services in the parking lot with a radio transmitter. We actually uh, commissioned Jack in the parking lot or in the yard here with a radio transmitter. Um, <laughs> he gave people high fives with a, a little glove on a noodle, a pool noodle, if you remember that. Uh, in fact, in the last two years, we have missed only one Sunday where we didn't have any way to gather. And it wasn't because of COVID. It wasn't because of fires or anything like that. It was because of the ice storm that hit us on Saturday, Friday night. And it knocked out the heat to the building and the internet to the building and my home. So there was just no way. <laughs> but that was the only Sunday that we missed. We have worked so hard, and so many churches have worked so hard to make sure that we are able to continue to gather. We have all of our internet technology so that even if you're not able to physically gather with us, you're able to digitally gather with us. Why is that so important? Why have we put so much effort into making sure that we can gather together? because we have worked really hard. Well, that's what I want us to, to look at today, because one of the things that I, one of the trends that, I'm, that we've noticed over the past decades is a decline in participation in the church. Uh, the recent statistics I've heard say that a regular attender is uh, two times a month. It used to be a regular attender was three times a week. Now, we are not at, for, for historical context, we are not at the lowest rates of church attendance in American history. The lowest rates of, Amer of church attendance in American history were during the colonial era. That was the most unchurched time in our history. But we have just seen participation. Now, part of that, it, there's a lot of cultural things going on because participation in groups has gone down in our culture. People just don't part, like the Shriners are down and the, like, all the, the fraternity, all those group people just don't participate in things as much. But I think that one of the reasons why we struggle to, to dedicate time to gathering is because we don't fully understand the reason for it. 
and the value in it. One of the things I notice is that if I meet a person outside from church, somewhere out in the world, and I haven't been to church in a while, what do you think the first thing they do is? They apologize for how long it's been since they've gathered because it's as if our, like there's some guilt associated with not coming. I don't want you all to come because you think it's an obligation that there are people keeping score and judging you because you weren't here enough. What I want us to see is that there is a value to coming, that there is something good that happens here that makes us want to come, not feel obligated to come. So, what is that good thing that happens when we gather? As I studied for this series, I found that in in evangelical Protestant churches, you tend to get two main arguments, two main reasons. First is edification, which is a fancy kind of churchy word for being fed. Um, And so what this means, this is the view that says that we gather to be encouraged and to be built up. We come to church so that we can be taught, so that we can experience worship that, that encourages us, so that we can be lifted up and, and prepared for the rest of the week, that we can get through the rest of the week because we came to church. Now, this is a valid biblical perspective. The Bible would agree that this is something that should be happening as we gather, The author of Hebrews says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. There is a sense in scripture that when we gather, we are meant to be building each other up. In fact, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth about some of the chaos in their worship, one of the problems that he points out with that is it's not helping anybody. Everything you do should be helping each other. If it's chaotic, if you're just saying stuff to say stuff and it's not actually building people up, that's a problem. So this is supposed to be part of what happens when we worship, when we gather together. There are some limitations to this perspective, however. One of them, I would argue, is that this perspective kind of tells us that the real world is what happens on the other six days, and in church, we're somehow retreating from the real world. Like, we're taking a time out from what's real so that we can be built up and then go back into the game. And I'm, I'm not sure that I would say that what happens out in the world is more real than what happens as we gather in the presence of God. The main problem with this is if you take it too far, Because what happens, especially in our individualistic consumer culture, is that we start judging a church service based on what I got out of it. And a church service is successful because I enjoyed the worship or because I felt fed. You know, if I didn't get anything, then it wasn't worth going. Is sometimes the mentality that we get drawn into. And I I remember this story. I'm pretty sure it's about Francis Chan. I'm fairly certain, but it might not be. But this... Francis Chan was talking to a guy after a service who said, you know, I didn't really get fed in that service. It just, it didn't feed me. And Francis Chan said, that's okay, because we weren't worshiping you. <laughs> Which, what he is pointing out is Francis Chan there, if that, assuming that is Francis Chan, um, is making the argument for this second perspective of why we gather, which is to worship. We gather to praise and thank God. So, the first mentality is that I come so that I can receive. The second mentality is I come so that I can give praise to God. So, the word worship, in its roots, it means to, in Hebrew, it means to bow down, to prostrate yourself in front of someone, to show that they are of a higher rank than you. In the English word worship means worth-ship, identifying how much someone is worth. 
The idea is we recognize that we're only here because God made us, that, that everything we have is from him, that we owe him our gratitude and our obedience and all, and so we spend this time thanking and praising God and, and recognizing who he is. This also is biblical. In Hebrews it says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Scripture teaches us to do this. The Psalms are all about praising God, right? So these are the two ways that we tend to talk about why we gather. I'm going to argue that these two reasons, while biblical, are insufficient. And here's the really, on, there's, when you realize it, it's, to me, I suddenly realize it's right in front of me why they're not sufficient. Because you don't have to gather with the church to do either of them. You don't have to gather with the church to be edified. In fact, most of the ways that this church has to edify you are outside of the, morning, the Sunday morning worship service, right? We have classes. We have small groups. Those edify you. You can be edified when you go out to coffee with one other person. You can be edified sitting alone with your Bible or a book. There are lots of ways that you can learn, and I hope that you aren't restricting your learning and encouragement of each other to just the Sunday service. And say the same thing about worship. Worship not only is not something you can only do in the gathering, but you should not only be doing it in the gathering. We're going to talk about worship next week, but if you listen to a sermon on worship, one of the things the pastors will always touch on, and I'll probably touch on it next week, is that you shouldn't only do it on Sunday. You can worship if you're driving in your car. You can worship in the way you serve other people. You can worship in gardening. You can worship all kinds of anything you do that you do in such a way to recognize who God is can be worship. So, you can worship and you can be built up without ever gathering with the congregation. And this might be the reason why we're failing to see the value in gathering because we don't actually need it for, those, for the reasons we say we do it. So there's one more word, it's a complicated word because we don't have an English, a good English version for it, that we need to keep in mind when we look at why we gather. You find it in Acts 13, 2. This is talking about the church in Antioch, and it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The NIV translates that as worshiping, which is the best, the most common word, the best common word they could come up with for it. But that word has nothing to do with bowing down before someone. There's a Greek word for worship, and this is not it. The Greek word that's being used here is liturgia. It's the root of the word liturgy. You're familiar with that word? The word liturgy, most, the most literal translation of it, of the Greek word, is public service. So that's why the NASB translates this sentence, while they were serving the Lord and fasting. So that word for what they are doing is not about being edified, and it's not about worshiping, it's about serving. And I'm going to unpack this for you a bit, but to, get, to tell you what this liturgia word really means, and the Hebrew equivalent, Hebrew has a word that means the same thing. This view of the worship service says that we gather to work for God for the sake of the people. I don't know if this is true, but it might be why we call it a worship service. I don't know. I didn't actually look that up because I didn't want to find out it was wrong. I thought I could just say it. It's convenient, at the very least it's convenient that it's worship service, because this word is ultimately a word about working. So I'm going to unpack the Old Testament side of it first. So we find this, the, the 
Hebrew equivalent of the word from Acts 13. The first place it occurs is in Genesis 39. Joseph has been enslaved by the, uh, sold into slavery with the, uh, the Egyptians, and he's been sold to a man named Potiphar. And it says, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. One of the common ways that this word is used is to refer to a person who serves a master. Most often, it's serving a king. In this first case, it's serving, uh, jo- uh, Joseph serves the uh, Potiphar, and then he gets thrown in jail, and he serves the jailer when the jailer gives him responsibilities in the jail. He promotes him and makes him. So this is a person who serves with some kind of responsibility for, someone, for their master. That is the generic meaning of the word. However, it takes on a special religious meaning in the Old Testament. The majority of times that this word is used in the Old Testament, it talks specifically about the service that the priests do for God at the temple. So, for instance, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister, and to pronounce blessings in his name as they still do today. It's in Deuteronomy. So that, that specialized word, it, it takes on the meaning specifically of the priests and the Levites serving God, and specifically in the tabernacle and in the temple. But there's an interesting little wrinkle in both the Hebrew concept and in the Greek word. Because I told you the Greek word means public service. And that's because in the pagan world, they had this idea. They, they would basically take, have the rich people take turns sponsoring public worship. So if you're a rich person and you want to do public service, you would pay for a week. Like we pay for, I'm going to pay for the services to the god Ares for the month of July. And I will go, I probably should have picked March, shouldn't I? Because that's, that's the month I named after him. Anyway, um, and I will go and lead the, the worship in his temple for that month. And I'm do, I, so we're worshiping for the city, but I'm paying for it. And so it's my public service is to fund, kind of like when rich people would pay for churches, same kind of idea, right? And so in the Greek world before the New Testament, that was the sense that this word took on. Now in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, the sense was that when the priests serve God, they're doing it on behalf of all of Israel, right? And, and it's so that all of Israel can live in God's presence. So in Ezekiel, it talks about the priests. He says, they may serve in my sanctuary, having charge of the gates of the temple and serving in it. They may slaughter the burnt offering and sacrifices for the people and stand before the people and serve them. So in serving God, they are also serving the people. They are standing between God and the people, serving both ways. What they do for God, God gives the instructions. God gives them, tells them what to do, but what they're doing is for the benefit of all of Israel. That makes sense? Because then God takes it up a level. Because not only do the priests stand before God for the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel stands before God on behalf of the nations. This is the mission that God calls them to when he first calls them to, the mountain, to Mount Sinai. He says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. To be a kingdom of priests or a priestly kingdom means that they as a kingdom, as a people, are work in God's presence for the benefit of the world, of all people. So this is the sense that this word has, that you serve God on behalf of the people. 
Now, you may say, but that's an Old Testament concept, right? That's, that's Old Covenant because that's when they had a temple. We don't have a temple anymore, so that's not how it works. We have Jesus, the one intercessor, and, and we, that's, we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. The problem is that the apostles would not agree because they actually take the concepts of Israel's priesthood to the nations and they transfer it over onto the church. So Peter, for instance, says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special, special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So Peter would say that that mission that Israel had is also the mission of the church. And so that sense of God's people serving God on behalf of the world, that carries over into what we do. So now that we have seen the Old Testament basis, and we know that this in some way applies to the New Testament, now I want to go through the New Testament passages and kind of build the logic of seeing our worship gatherings as an opportunity for work, as an occasion for service. It begins with this realization, this biblical principle. When God's people gather, Jesus brings us into the presence of God. This is the biggest change that happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not that temples and worshiping in God's presence was abolished. It was that access to the presence of God was transformed. First of all, because Jesus made it possible for us to access God's presence without all the ritualistic rigmarole, without all the ceremonial stuff that they had to do at the temple to demonstrate that this person has been cleaned temporarily so they can spend some time. It's like, it's like the difference between get, putting on a hazmat suit um, and going into a, a, a quarantined area as opposed to getting inoculated so that you're not, you're not susceptible to the disease anymore. That's what Jesus does for us is he removes that, that necessity. That He makes it so that we can be cleansed and can be changed so that God can accept us into his presence. The author of Hebrews is using temple imagery when he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is not that the presence of God doesn't matter anymore. It's that the, we are all able to access the presence of God through the cleansing of Jesus, and we don't have to go to the temple to do it. The question is, where do we have to go? If we don't have to go to the temple, where do we experience the presence of God? Well, we've already seen one reference to, one, to a principle in the New Testament that tells us where we access the presence of God. Peter said, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's saying that we are, one, we are two different things in this passage. He's mixing metaphors. One, we're a priesthood, but two, we're all bricks of the temple. We are being built together into a spiritual house. Paul will say the same thing in Ephesians, that we are being built together into a spiritual house, that we, as the people of God are his temple. 
See, there are, there are three levels, at least, to God's presence in, in Scripture. First of all, God is present everywhere in some sense because he's omnipresent, right? There's no place that God doesn't have access to. Number two, as followers of Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. So God is present in us in the Holy Spirit. But the third level is that there is some special sense in which God is present when God's people gather in his name. Jesus said as much in Matthew, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. When they gather, I am present in some unique way. Paul will say the same thing to the Corinthians. He's tr- talking to them about how they should deal with a person who is, um, uh, is living with his, uh, he's having an affair with his stepmother. And to deal with them, Paul tells them how to deal with them. And the first step is he says, when you are assembled and I am with you and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, dot, dot, dot. And then he tells them what to do. We'll talk about what he tells them what to do in a second. But notice that the first step is get together, do it in the assembly because Paul is with them in spirit and the power of Jesus is with them. So there is this principle in the New Testament that when God's people gather together in his name, he is specially present. Alexander Campbell put it this way, the assembly is the house of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are especially and emphatically in the presence of the Lord when we are engaged in his worship. This is why the gathering is so important, because we experience the presence of God in a special way. And here's, here's the interesting thing that may get your, your uh, Protestant hackles up, but I promise that it, this is biblical, I'll show you. The, one of the, the most important reason why it matters that God is present is because when God's people gather in his presence, he gives their actions special meaning. It matters what we do when God is present. This is exactly the point that both Jesus and Paul are making in those two passages that I brought up. So why is Jesus telling them where, I, where, where two or more gathered in my name, I'm with them? What is, what is the context? Why does that matter? He says, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. What you do when you gather in my name matters. One of the things that we talked about throughout the series of the plan was how God genuinely does delegate responsibility to his people. He wants to cooperate with us. He wants to work with us. Now, this doesn't mean that when Christians gather together, they get superpowers and they can do whatever they want. Obviously, that's not true or the world would look very different, right? If, we, if just whatever we said when we got together actually happened. It's when we gather in his name and we act in his name, we, we have the opportunity to work with God. And what we do here, well, not here in this building, but here in this gathering of people, including you, that was the camera, it matters what we do. This is why Paul tells them to get together before they deal with this guy who's having the affair with his mother-in-law. He said, or, uh, uh, not mother-in-law, his uh, stepmother. When you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. He wants, what I, we, can get it, we can talk about what it means to hand him over to Satan. Like that's a thing that people debate about, and it's not our point here. The point here is whatever that means, they're specifically supposed to do it when they are gathered because the power of Jesus is present. 
So the gathering matters because it's an opportunity to participate with God. And you can see evidence of that in what James tells us at the end of his letter about how to deal with sickness and with sin. He says, is anyone in you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Notice that part of, this isn't just prayer solves things, but it's praying for each other, praying together, praying in the church, right? He says, bring the elders in. Praying together matters. This passage is one of the reasons why we confess every week. Because it matters that we come before God as a body and we confess and we share his forgiveness with each other. So this is the logic of, uh, this is the, logic of the gathering is that it matters what we do. And so what does it matter for? What does it accomplish? Who does it help? Well, let me, let me lay out some biblical passages that show us the scale of what the gathering of God's people can do. First of all, God works through his people to change individuals. This is what I would argue Paul has in mind when he says, therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. What does it mean to work out our salvation? It doesn't mean to work enough so that you will be saved. It means that your salvation is supposed to change you. And one of the ways that you work out that transformation is by gathering in God's name regularly, taking communion regularly, giving sacrificially, worshiping and recognizing who God is. The things that we do on a Sunday morning, the things that we do when we gather, they set patterns in us for how we think how we think of ourselves, how we think of each other, how we think of God. And in that work that we do, we work out the consequences of our salvation. We work out what it means to be saved people. Because it doesn't mean you get a a get-out-of-jail-free card and you can do whatever you want. It is not what it means to be saved. Because I would argue you you haven't actually been saved from sin. You may have been saved from hell, but you haven't been saved from sin because you're still stuck in it. This is also what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. The letter of Hebrews is concerned with a church that is facing persecution, and the author of Hebrews sees the the regular gathering of God's people as critical to encouraging and equipping those people to endure persecution. Those people are changed by by regularly gathering together. But not only are we changed as individuals, and not only do we have opportunities in the way we participate to encourage each other, because I'm not the only one who has the ability to encourage people in this service, and people up here are not the only ones who have the ability to encourage each other during a service. Every one of you has that opportunity. But also, God works through his people to change the church, the congregation. This is why what we, we need to gather as a congregation. The biggest scale that you gather on is the biggest scale in which you grow in maturity as a body. 
And so it matters the identity of our body of believers. It matters our vision. It matters what we do as a community. It matters that we are a family. And so Paul says that Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for, acts, for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is the logic that Paul uses for talking about the body of Christ, that he gives people different gifts so that when we gather together, we can all benefit from all of them. So we gather as a congregation so that we can be a mature... Do you recognize that God cares not just about how mature you are as a believer, but how mature we are as a congregation? An immature congregation can do a lot of damage or can fail to do a lot of good. And so it matters not only who we are as individuals, but who we are as a congregation. And the gathering is the way that we are built up as a congregation. Finally, God works uh, through his people to change individuals, the church, and the world. The gathering of God's people changes the world. First of all, through intercessory prayer. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, the petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Notice that that sentence, that that clause, does not make any sense unless Paul believes that the world will be made more peaceful because the gathered church prayed. The whole logic, the reason why he tells them to pray is because it will make their world more peaceful. That's what he's telling them. If you want to live peaceful lives, gather together and pray for all people, including those in authority. This is why every week we do the prayers of the church. I know that's not as common anymore, but I don't want to miss an opportunity for us to gather together and pray for our communities. And so every week, Rachel comes up here. Sometimes other people will come up here and they will pray on behalf of the church because it matters what we do when we gather together and what we pray for. And as we serve God, we are brought into the most grand uh, uh, project we could ever be brought into, this ministry. That's another way we could translate this word is ministry, but be a bit more like the way they use it in Great Britain, like ministry of defense and ministry of, like, that's how they use it for people serving the queen. Paul says, all this is from God, this, uh, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against us. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Notice, co-workers. The root word there for work is the same as liturgia. We are co-workers with God. For whatever reason, not because he needs us, but because he has chosen to work with us, God uses us, and the work that we do in proclaiming and living out the gospel, every time we gather, he uses that to change people. And I will tell you that the world is different because God's people have gathered together every Lord's Day since the resurrection. The world is different in radical ways that we don't even understand because they are so fundamental to the way our communities see the world. Even people who would never darken the door of a church are formed by communities that have gathered in the name of Christ. So what we do as we gather matters. 
Why do I talk about all this? What's the point of, of getting into the value of, of gathering? Here's what I want you to take home today. Okay? We're going to talk about the value, how each part of our worship service is work that we do with God. But what I want you to take home today is three things. Number one, we gather to do, not to watch. There are no spectators in the gathering of God's people, and that includes you, all of you. We are not spectators. We come to do. Even if you never leave your seat from call to worship to dismissal, you are here to do. And I'm not saying that you're failing to do it. I'm saying that you probably aren't even realizing that you're doing it. This is not a guilt trip to say you need to start doing. This is to say, hey, you've been doing it. We come to serve God. And everything that we do is a way of serving God to serve the people. And that means, recognizing that, that we need to remember that a gathering is measured by how it serves God, not by how it makes me feel. Now that cuts two ways. On the one side, it might be if, if you're, I mean, I've certainly been in this mentality before, walked out of a service and said, I didn't like any of the songs, I didn't get any of the preaching, I didn't like it, it was a bad service. That is not how God judges a service. God is not up there saying, man, Matt didn't get anything out of that. What a wasted Sunday. So whenever we get sucked into that mentality, we need to remember it's not actually about me. Now, hopefully, you are getting something out of the service. Remember, that is part of what we want to happen. But it is not the measure of a successful service. The other side of it, which I hope is more encouraging, is that you may be one of those people who just barely made it here today. There are actually quite a few people that I talk to and say, hey, how are you doing? They say, well, I made it. Maybe you just barely got the family out of bed. Maybe you just barely got here. And maybe you spent this entire service distracted by other things. Your, your, your job is falling apart. Your family's falling apart. Your house is falling apart. Distracted by things and you just could not get emotionally engaged. And you couldn't get your heart into a place of worship. And you couldn't do all that. And you feel like you wasted this opportunity. Well, I sincerely hope and pray for you that you will be able to lay those burdens down as you come to worship. But what I want you to understand is you still can do the work. And I would argue that there are ways in which the, the work matters more when we do it when we don't want to or when we don't feel like it. It's more of a sacrifice. It's more of a sign of love for God when you don't feel like coming and you come anyway. When you don't like the song and you sing anyway. When you cannot focus on a word that I am saying, but you sit through every minute of the sermon and can't remember a word of it when you get home, but you were here to serve God. Ultimately, our goal for our worship service is that it would do everything, that it would edify every single one of you and that God would be fully, completely worshiped and every single one of us would be able to connect with him in exactly the way we want to. That's a great target. But the one part of that that you can actually control is you can't control your heart. You can't control the distractions all the time. The one part you can control is did you come and did you do the things? Did you serve God? And if you did, that matters. And I thank you for that because it's an honor to serve God with you. 
And I want to encourage you because the last thing I want you to take away from this is that gathering to serve God on behalf of the people can change and has changed the world. Now, I don't want to tell you, because we're, we're kind of, we're in a pendulum swing where it used to be, there were a lot of people who thought, as long as I go to church on Sunday, nothing else matters, I can do whatever I want on the other six days, because we overemphasize Sunday. And then the pendulum swung to where we said, well, it doesn't really matter what I do on Sunday as long as I've got the other six days. You know, the gathering doesn't matter so much as long as I'm a good person. And it's, both of these are important. It matters what you do when you're out in the world, and it matters what you do when you gather with God's people, because there is power in everything you do out in the world when you do it in God's name. There is also power in everything we do in God's presence when we gather together. And we, we can't really fully introduce people to God unless we can introduce them to God's people and bring them into God's presence when we gather. That's how we show people God's presence. We, we don't just wait for them to have the strange warming of the heart or something. We can invite them in to experience the presence of God in the gathering of his people. And that can change and does change the world. So as I said, it is, I am so excited to be back here serving God with you. And it is an honor to be able to do that with this congregation. As we... As we move towards our closing hymn, I want to ask you to consider what next steps God may be putting before you. God is working in each and every one of us, and every time we hear the word of God proclaimed, we have an opportunity to respond. Now, the biggest and most important and most obvious way you can respond is by giving your life to Jesus. If you haven't given your life to Jesus and you haven't found that relationship where you have constant access to the presence of God and where he is working in you and transforming you, today is the best day for you to make that commitment. Maybe you have made that commitment, but you need that building up. You need the community of God to come alongside you and to help you learn how to work out that salvation, to live as a saved person. That's what our small groups and our, connect, and our, uh, our, small groups and our classes are for. Maybe you want to be a part of a congregation that gathers regularly to worship, to be edified, and to serve God. That is who we want to be as Turner Christian Church if you want to make one of those decisions, if you want to give your life to Christ, you just come on down during the song or you talk to one of the ministers afterward. If you'd like to join one of our groups or uh, attend our Connect class that will introduce you to the congregation, you can check that on your, Connect, on your Connect card before you put it in the box. Those are only three ways that you can respond because there may be something God is saying on your heart. And I have no idea what it is, but you know. And if that's the case, I encourage you to say yes to whatever God is putting on your heart as we stand and sing this song. But please take this song as an opportunity to respond to Jesus.